to exploring Filipino traditions. I'm your host, Nastasha Ali. So it's basically taken me like a decade to come and accept that my life's always going to be split in two. There's my day job that fills most of my days with what I get paid to do, and my real job, which involves everything that has to do with researching and producing stories for the podcast, for the show. And my day jobs, they've always been in Toronto, while my real job, well, isn't. <laughs> I've also come to understand that life basically happens in stages. It's been kind of a good thought to carry me through to the end of this year. To think that just like I didn't really graduate high school, or just like moving to Canada, or like finally understanding that your past relationships don't have to dictate the future ones. It sounds simple and logical and it makes sense to think that life happens in stages. And I say all this because we're going to get pretty deep this episode, and I got drawn into this story about the Ifugao rice terraces because every time I started to work on it, that's exactly how I felt. a little in over my head, and like that internal feeling of being caught between these two worlds that I always felt was very private, like somehow it was something I could physically see and feel. I guess to kind of illustrate that, what I mean is that at my day job, I work for a travel company, I've spent the last two years writing about places that people save up sometimes for years to visit, like hiking to Machu Picchu or traveling by train through Europe and eating your way across Japan. Those are things that people dream of doing and they save up a lot of money to do it. And yeah, visiting the incredible rice terraces of the Philippines, that's a tour that you'll find on a lot of companies that offer tours to the Philippines because it is something that people learn about and something that draws them to visit this place, this very magical, almost mystical terraces that look like they're a stairway to heaven. Today, all you gotta do is search for the right hashtag on social media or tap the little map icon on someone's profile to see all these amazing pictures that people take there. And here's where my worlds collide. Granted, it's a little speck of dust in the overall picture, <laughs> but what I mean is that in every one of those photos online, in every article you'll read, in every textbook, even on the highway that you take going up to that area, people learn about these ancient rice terraces, an amazing feat of engineering dug into the Cordillera Mountains over 2,000 years ago by the Ifugal communities whose descendants still live there. But what if I told you that's wrong? 
what if this place that Filipino people consider one of their greatest cultural treasures that we think about almost immediately when we think about rice, because, well, rice is a big part of Filipino culture. What happens when we have proof from scientists and anthropologists that what we know about it is wrong, that it's false, and that the need to rewrite history that's in textbooks, when that becomes a real thing? Unlearning is such a big word, and there's a lot of unlearning to do. The story that unfolds amid the majesty of northern Luzon's tallest peaks in the Cordillera mountain range, where these clouds lift with the morning dew and they still mark the passing of time every day in the same way they have for hundreds of years, it just fascinates me. This episode, we're talking with Dr. Stephen Acabado, an archaeologist who wrote a book called Antiquity, Archaeological Processes, and Highland Adaptation, The Ifugao Rice Terraces, published in 2015 by the Ateneo University Press. Let's get to it. Hello, everyone. I'm Steven Cabado. I am currently an associate professor of anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles. I was born and I, I spent, I think, more than half of my life in, in the Philippines. Uh, I was born in, in, in Bicol and then went to UP Diliman to, for my undergraduate degree in anthropology and then went to Hawaii for my uh, graduate degree also in anthropology. Uh, my first job was in Guam and then in 2013 I was lucky enough to get hired by UCLA. I've been working in Ifugao since uh, 2003 as part of my master's research and then went back in the region in 2007 for my PhD. I was supposed to work in Cambodia for my PhD, but I didn't have the time and money to learn French and Khmer. Um, and also, I wanted to contribute to the development of Philippine anthropology. Did you get to spend much time in the mountain province in Ifugao region prior to kind of beginning that project? Actually, no. Um, but I, I've known about the Ifugao rice terraces and the Ifugao and, and the, the larger Cordillera region because of how the rice terraces or at least the issues surrounding the dating of the terraces is part of our curriculum. I was a product of the Philippine uh, public educational system, and so we follow the nationalized uh, curricula during that time. And so we were told, as you know, that the rice terraces are at least 2,000 years old. And also um, all of our history textbooks talk about the Ifugao um, or the larger Cordillera region as like a blast from the past, that if you want to learn about pre-Hispanic 
pre-contact Filipinos, you just go up to the mountains and voila, you have a living museum. Um, and so that gave me an idea in when thinking about my dissertation and how to address this type of ethnocentrism or racism among Filipinos because that, that idea um, is, is racist at its core. So yeah, growing up in Bicol, I've never, I've never been to the mountain province or the Cordillera region. I've only been to Manila twice in my life before going to my degree in anthropology at UP. What I find interesting from my perspective now is that when I was talking to a few friends about doing this episode, that's what I said as well, is that in the Philippines, just through the school system and the curriculum there, you grow up with that that basic idea that it's like just a, a fact that the rice terraces are over 2,000 years old. And everybody is aware of that. It's, as you mentioned in the book, plastered on these big billboards as you approach on the highway to the region. And in all like the international publications and websites on the internet, they do all say that, um, that it's, it's 2,000 years old. Um, and I almost take it a bit personally that I, I do wonder what it would take to change people's minds and help them sort of understand that that isn't set in stone, you know, and your book really kind of opened my eyes to that a lot. Um, and that's part of my advocacy, I guess, with this podcast is I, I am aiming to talk to people who are experts in their field to really broaden our understanding of food culture and how important it is to us. Because as Filipinos in the diaspora, it's like rice, for example, is just something that we all know. It's something that we are all very, very familiar with and we can't live without it. And especially for people who did not grow up in the country, one of the things that they'll automatically think about when you say Philippine rice is, oh, the rice terraces, oh, they're over 2000 years old. And so, yeah, one of the things, that's one of the reasons I'm excited to ask you about the questions <laughs> in the book today. Changing this narrative entails changing a lot or unlearning a lot of the things that we learned in, in school. So the dating of the rice terraces is just part of that larger issue on the peopling of the Philippines. And this peopling of the Philippines that Dr. Cabado talks about specifically refers to the long-established waves of migration theory that was originally proposed by H. Oatley Bear. He's a big name we'll come back to. Essentially, he started the anthropology department at the University of the Philippines, and he's just this, you'll see him everywhere in museums. His theory basically is that people populated the Philippines in different waves or phases. The first phase, according to Bayer, were the cave dwellers. After, as he termed, came the negritos, a word used by Europeans and later Americans to refer to various indigenous cultures of Southeast Asia. To them, they were all the same from Malaysia to Thailand and the Philippines. After that, there were the sailors who arrived by boat, um, and then finally the Iron Age Malays, whose descendants are said to be who the Spanish conquerors met at contact. Anyway, the thing to remember is that we now have two of Bayer's theories disproven. 
the first that the Ifugao terraces are over 2,000 years old, and the second that people settled the Philippines in waves. Both of these theories, I want to point out, don't have actual archaeological evidence to support Byer's claims. So almost, again, almost all of us who are products of the Philippine educational system um, are familiar with the waves of migration theory by uh, H. Otley Byer. And so that idea that you have waves of peoples and quote-unquote races um, with varying degrees of, of skin tone associated with a specific um, technological sophistication. So that alone uh, gives us an idea that they try to link skin color with technology or with culture. So that is, again, racist at its core. And so when, when we want to change or we aim to change the narrative of the age of the terraces, we also have to change other aspects of how we teach archaeology or, or history in, in, in the Philippines. I tell Dr. Akabado that I've been reading the book here in Toronto, at home during the pandemic, and it feels like maybe one of the main reasons I'm connecting with it so strongly, <laughs> despite the fact that it's an academic textbook with a number of concepts I can't quite grasp, I think it's simply because it's the truth. And it talks about truths in the Philippine educational system, in our gradual understanding of the many ways that colonial rule and the systems that came with it, how that still shapes our core identity. And like I've said, it's mind-blowing. Also part of this larger issue on um, training our kids or our population to think critically um, and also because you know, in the, at least in the last three months, there are people who's been trying to argue for changing the narratives. And by this, we mean Byers' narratives, born of his worldview as a white American, educated at Harvard University in the 1900s, this guy who came to the Philippines as a volunteer teacher and then devoted his life to the study of human societies and cultures. And, and I'm happy I, I don't have to defend my work anymore because there's, there's a growing number of supporters of the model that now they, they understand that the 2,000-year-old model is not really based on any scientific data. It was based on the observations of pioneer anthropologists um, who linked the dating of the terraces to the peopling of the Philippines. That the Ifugaos were the second waves of, of Malays because they're rice, rice growers. But then he says there's an additional layer to the story. Because at the time of contact, the Ifugao people, they had their own religion. Um, but they're not Christian, so they don't fit that model of lowland rice cultivators. Who, as Dr. Akabado explains, some other schools of thought suggest were pushed up into the mountains, bringing their technology of wet rice cultivation to build the rice terraces, 
completely different from the dry rice cultivation that was practiced in the lowlands and plains of Luzon. But then you have these people on the mountains who are producing rice, irrigated rice, um, but they they are not Christians or, or Muslims during the time of contact. So, um, All of this is to say that the story of the Ifugao people and of their lives in the seemingly magical terraced fields dug into the slopes of the mountains, it gets pretty muddy. Between generations of people who either learned Bayer's theories as facts, between people who don't remember any of this at all, or who weren't taught it in school because they grew up outside of the country, there's so much room for various versions of truth. And I keep going on about this because I started this episode thinking that I needed to present this kind of hook to get people's attention. To say something like, I can't just sit here and allow this fake news, as I thought of calling it. I can't just sit here and let it perpetuate. Even within this little sphere of the Filipino diaspora online that I live in, you who's listening to this, I can't talk about rice, we can't talk about rice, in my opinion, without knowing the truth that the terraces that are so closely associated with rice in the Philippines that millions of tourists visit every year, that its age, repeated in perpetuity, is based on the assumptions of a white American male believed for so long without question. And the accompanying perceptions that many Filipino people, myself included, those ideas that we carry through with us through our lives that we think very little about with regard to the culture of the people who live in those areas, they matter a lot more than we realize. That's one of the main reasons why people try to, I think, cling to this romanticism of older is better. I think one of the issues also is that the Philippines really don't have the same monument buildings, large uh, archaeological sites that would be comparable to, say, Burubudur in, in Indonesia or Angkor Wat in Cambodia. So this, this is our monument. <laughs> and so the older, uh, the older it is, uh, the more prouder the people. But then again, the way we, we imagine it is like, yeah, that's, that's Filipino, but the people who constructed it, the Fugao, are not included in that discussion. I'd like to take the conversation now into some of the details of uh, the work that you have been doing. The, that idea of like being able to tell a story from different perspectives, because that's not something that, I mean, indigenous perspectives are certainly not something that I had encountered during my time in school in the Philippines. And in, in the first chapter of the book, you talk about appreciating and understanding the dynamics of the agricultural system um, in the Ifugao region, um, that it requires this awareness of environmental and cultural attributes of the Ifugao people who live there. With regard to the terracing, would you be able to maybe share like an anecdote that helped you understand just how ingrained that 
relationship with the environment is to the, the people who live there even today? I think it has something to do with not the rice terraces per se, but the centrality of rice in, in Ifugao culture. So when we talk about um, the social status, social organization among the Ifugao and how they measure someone's prestige and wealth, um, they relate it to the ability of a person to eat rice the whole year round. And so one of the anecdotes that still makes me chuckle uh, is this in 2012 or 2013, uh, I was running a field school and I know that a lot of the Fugaos uh, would prefer rice, but I was really craving for sweet potato. So I went to the market and bought a sack of sweet potato. And I went back to our headquarters and started boiling the sweet potato and I told my students that we will have a snack later and they were so happy and I informed my Ifugo collaborators that I'm I'm preparing something for snacks and they asked me what it is they said it's a sweet potato and they just looked at me with disdain we're not pigs I know they were um, joking because sweet potato for them is for pigs and I said yeah I know <laughs> and so um, they were they know what I, it's just a, an indication of, of the centrality of rice and the importance of rice in, in among the Fugao. And so the next question I gotta ask is just how important is the planting and the harvesting of rice today for communities who actually live among the terraces? with this burgeoning tourism in the area, I just, it makes me wonder, how much does growing rice on the terraces actually figure into the lives of locals? I can go on about the effects of tourism, especially moving forward. And what I mean is that we need to remember this concept of terracing in itself, that it's part of a larger system. Because... In Dr. Akabada's book, he also describes the social organization of Ifugao communities in a lot of detail. It's quite complex. Like, after reading the book, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this bilateral kinship system. For the Ifugao, it has a lot to do with their ancestors. And um, land, by the way, particularly those with terraced rice fields, it's always something that's handed down from one generation to the next. And in terms of landscape management, um, they also know that if you look at uh, the social ranking, so you have the Kadangyan as the, the wealthy group. Akadangyan is an acquired status. You don't get to be born into it. But if you're born in a Kadangyan family, then you have the capacity to be a Kadangyan because you will inherit the family's possessions. Now, what, what are the poor people, and in the middle are the Tago or the Natomo. And so, then what, what are the, the group of people who don't own um, rice fields? Um, and even if you own rice fields, but if you're not able to sponsor feasts, then you don't get to be a Kadangyan. Um, Going back to the centrality of rice. And so within that uh, social political organization, they look at multiple aspects of their 
this is a new term that we're going to publish soon, agro-eco-cultural system. Um, that rice is there, rice terraces, but it's just part of this larger system. And that, I think, represents a reminder that we need, that there's more to the story that supporting people and organizations on the ground and making way for their stories to be heard. It feels like the best way that you and I who are listening to this can actually make a difference. To remember that beyond this whole age of the terraces issue, what's really at stake and what should really grab our attention is asking what the future is going to look like for those who still live there. Like Dr. Akabata said, terracing is part of a larger system. That includes agroforestry, Sweden fields, um, what we call pejoratively a kaingin or a slash and burn. And you have gardens and the irrigation channel. So although rice terraces dominate the Ifugao landscape, it's actually a smaller component of the source of carbohydrates. So, And this is something to keep in mind, that also according to Dr. Akabado and other anthropologists' research, there's a lot to support the theory that root crops, and not rice, were the main source of carbohydrates for highland communities in the Cordilleras, including the Ifugao. We'll get back to this later. They get more food from Sweden fields rather than rice. And because of that limited access to rice, then if you're able to eat rice the whole year round, then you must be wealthy. But I'm, I'm not saying that this is it's the same uh, view right now. Um, of course, culture is dynamic, culture changes, um, but this is the basis, it's still the, the foundation of how they, they look at the rice terraces. Like personally for me as well, like growing up, um, if we would take, say, weekend trips to southern Luzon, so around to like, say, Batangas, or even going up to Tarlac, Pangasinan, like that area. I remember from when I was a kid, um, you know, being in the car and driving, and then we would see um, in the mountainsides, na, so they have slash and burn as a method of farming. And I remember learning about it um, in school. And then like, to fast forward, I guess, uh, much later on, I had gone to Mindanao to stay at an agroforestry farm in Bukidnon because it was recommended by someone I knew online. And when I was there, the farm manager, uh, he was saying that because I could see smoke rising from the, the forest that the farm was at, and then I just mentioned it. I, I asked the farm owner, so I said, um, Sir, And then he said yes. But then he said something that really stuck with me, which was that kaingin is actually, he said at the time, kaingin was good for the environment and good for people. Um, but a lot of us don't see it that way. And it just like stuck in my head. And then now that I read it, I've, I've learned a little bit more about the intricacies of, of Sweden agriculture and what it is really doing for the soils um, in, in this particular environment. Um, it, just, it, it just made me change my mind a lot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think that that was one of the things really that was like, wow, 
pwede palang magiba yung, yung paningin ko doon. At the same time, that also extends to how I have thought about people from the highlands. Um, admittedly, I again, as product of the educational system, I had always thought of people in the highland regions as those like, I forget what term you said po at the beginning, like they're remnants almost of like a really ancient society. But in the book, you also say that, you know, if we accept that it was built 2000 years ago, then does that also mean that if go culture has not advanced very much in 2000 years? So I really appreciated that you had pointed that out for us to, to think about more. That was actually the turning point for my collaborators to think about the implications of the 2,000-year-old model um, because it took a while, uh, especially Marlon Martin. Marlon, by the way, became the chief operating officer of the Save the Ifugao Terraces movement. A little more on that later. In 2012, we had this conversation about um, my initial publication in 2009 that argued the terraces as act really more recent than taught to us in popular media in our textbooks. And they said, oh, it doesn't matter. Um, we, we really don't care about the, the dating of the terraces. And for us, it's 2,000 years old because that's what early anthropologists have said. And it's, it's, if, if you really look at it this way, all of these major civilizations that we learn from school started with intensive agricultural systems. And once they are able to produce surplus, then you see developments in the sciences, development in the arts, uh, social political changes, and uh, centralization. And then we don't see that here. Um, so does that mean that your ancestors only planted rice every day of their lives for 2,000 years? And that's when they started thinking about the larger implication of the 2,000-year-old model in terms of how they understand themselves. this book called Epics of the Philippines. It was published in 1984, part of um, the anthology of ASEAN literatures. I love this book. <laughs> and I bring it up because the cover depicts the rice terraces. In this case, by the way, what I mean when I talk about epics are the epic oral traditions that are passed down from one generation to the next. They're epic in the modern sense of the word because they're so long, I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to memorize these stories and lines with some of these recorded epics lasting for days. It's an art form, an amazing one, with a lot of rhythm, poetry, and spoken word, really, in the languages that they're in. And they talk about heroes and villains and about how people of a certain community, for example, the Ifugao, about how they act and react and live with the people in the world around them. 
these epics are a living tradition at risk, which I don't need to remind everyone of, that represents the culture and really at its core, the basic worldview of these groups, at least to the extent that younger people from that group choose to stay connected to it. Anyway, the Ifugao epic is called the Hud Hud, and it was traditionally chanted during the harvest and weeding seasons uh, in the terraces, during marriage feasts, or at the wake of a prominent community member. There are lots of versions of the Hud Hud, but the basic storyline's the same. There's Aliguyon, who's the hero, he wants to marry the daughter of his father's enemy. And at the beginning of the story, basically, he consults both his father and an animist god named Idao in the form of a bird. Then he gets to the conclusion that challenging the son of his father's enemy, so basically the brother of the girl he wants to marry, this guy is named Pumbakayon. He wants to challenge him to a duel and the rest of the epic basically describes what happens after that. In the English translation of this hoodhood that's taken from a text that someone named Amador de Guillo had recorded from a local storyteller, there are multiple mentions of the village of Kiangan, someplace that plays a huge part in Dr. Akabada's research, and we're going to hear more about this in a bit. One other thing I'd like to talk about, though, is the Tarot First model that is also in the book. It's on pages 140 to 141. I kind of call it my favorite spread in the book, <laughs> just because there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of evidence, basically, to support the idea that root crops like taro were cultivated in the Cordillera terraces first, before people planted rice. So what this means, according to another anthropologist named Felix Kiesing, is that this technique of wet rice agriculture that highland groups used in the terraces, wet rice agriculture, by the way, that means when the sprouted seedlings are moved manually into the paddy fields to keep them carefully watered with this complex system of irrigation canals that are dug into the mountains, Basically, this wet rice agriculture technique, the success of that was very likely due to the success of cultivating taro and other root crops in basically the same ways on those terraces. And what archaeologists like Dr. Akabado have been able to prove with radiocarbon dating um, on things like pottery and bones. These are the artifacts they've been able to collect from these places. From excavating these sites in old villages like Kiangan, they've found out that people grew and consumed taro much earlier than they grew and consumed rice. Well, you know, a lot of Filipinos will be shocked to know that we don't have any evidence of rice wet rice, that is, irrigated rice, in the Philippines earlier than 
80 1300s. So widespread cultivation and consumption of rice started with the Spanish. It's so hard to to cultivate rice. You need 24/7 managing your rice fields. Too much water on a specific life cycle of, of rice will kill it. Not enough water will kill it. So there's really no need for our ancestors to produce rice, a lot of rice before the, the arrival of the Spanish, um, because they had taro and other sources of, of food. I just want to let that sink in for a minute. That widespread rice cultivation with the goal of harvesting more than what the family of the farmer like immediately needs. I can see how that comes as a result of large groups of people that are moving in or being displaced or being added into the population because of the expansion of Spanish colonial rule. Basically, prior to European contact, there just wasn't a need to produce that much rice, generally. Most of the population seems to have been fed well enough by other crops that the need to develop this specialized way of farming, meaning wet rice agriculture, that wasn't even needed, specifically in our case in the Ifogao region of the Cordilleras. Down in the lowlands, people seem to have been perfectly fine, at least as far as today's archaeology can tell us, with the dry rice method of agriculture. That basically involves tossing seeds in a field and waiting for them to grow. With this work, I just realized that, yeah, really, there's no evidence of, of early rice in the Philippines. And it also questions the idea of the Austronesian migration. This Austronesian migration theory, it's also known as the out-of-Taiwan model. It's basically the most widely accepted one today, proposed by this Australian named Peter Bellwood. Basically, in this theory, Bellwood argues that the first inhabitants of the Philippines, they traveled down from Taiwan and then settled in the northern Batanas Islands before making their way to mainland Luzon and then further south into the Visayas Islands, to Mindanao, into the Sulu Archipelago, and onto other island chains in the Pacific. This I also remember from school, but not until some social science class I took in college, like probably around 2004. According to that model, the movement of peoples from uh, presumably Taiwan down to the Philippines to the rest of, of the Pacific um, was spurred by rice cultivation. But we're not finding any evidence of, of rice uh, earlier than the maybe 1300s. Then again, it might be a case of sampling. The absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So we probably just haven't found any earlier evidence of rice. But, but in this case, when we, when we look at the data, there's really no evidence of that. Uh, and even in oral history, we see taro uh, or gabi as the more widespread source of carbohydrates. Since we were talking about the, the taro first sort of model, could you tell us about the Ifagao archaeological project in Old Kiangan? The Old Kiangan work is post-dissertation. So it, it was the first project of the Ifugao archaeological project. 
So before I talk about the Fuga archaeological project, I, I just wanted to say that archaeology doesn't seek the truth. As the famous Henry Jones Jr. said, or Indiana Jones for most of you said, um, if you're seeking for the truth, the philosophy de department is, is right around the corner. Archaeology really tests hypotheses. Um, we don't have to sample the whole Ifugao to say that the terraces are much younger than previously thought. We just have to test our hypothesis from various sites and argue for the validity of, of our methods. So when I did my dissertation work, that was just to test an hypothesis using Bayesian modeling to argue, or at least test whether the terraces are really 2,000 years old or, or much younger. And I hypothesized that the terraces were only constructed after the 15 or 1600s. And based on the modeling, it was almost 100% supported by the model statistically. So we started in, in Bukos in Banawe, and then when I was in Guam, the first field school that I ran was in, in Cebu. And after the field season, I brought my students to Ifugao and said I wanted you to, to see what I did for my dissertation. And there was the time when I, I met Marlon Martin, who is the chief operating officer of the Save the Ifugao Terraces movement. So I met with him. I was introduced by a common friend, Jovel Ananaya, who was back then a graduate student in Hawaii. So we were friends. And I told Marlon that, you know, can we restart my Ifuga work? But if I'm going to do this, I want the community to be part of it. So I want to work with you. Um, in this, and they said, he said, oh, maybe we can focus on the old Kangan village, which is plays a, 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 a huge role in the Fugao origin myth. Like I've said, the village of Kiangan is one to remember. There are multiple origin myths um, in Ifugao, but almost all of them uh, mention the old Kiangan village or Kiangan as the first village established by their ancestors. And so I said, okay, we'll do it. Um, then the following year, we started the Ifugao Archaeological Project. If you go there, Old Kangan Village is a rice field. It was abandoned, presumably in the mid-1800s, um, either because of the punitive attacks by Colonel Galve, or there was a um, epidemic. When the Americans took over in 1898, they did document elders talking about an older village, uh, Otbobon, uh, which is the old Gangan village. So we went there and excavated, and it is a large village. Um, when the Spanish initially counted the population, there were about 4,000 people in that small village, 180 houses. And if you compare that to Manila, where Intramuros is now, there are only 2,000 people in that settlement. Of course, there was almost 300-year 
gap between the two, 1571 and mid-1700s. So it's a a really large settlement in Philippine standards at that time. Here's another thing that I think is going to blow your mind, because mine for sure was. This whole idea of the terraces that resemble a stairway to heaven, that they're carved into the mountainside with the image of local terrace builders digging shovels into this hard-packed earth, because you know everything's done manually in the mountains, there's literally no room for machines that they're digging these seemingly endless levels of terraces by hand. It's great and all, and amazing, absolutely, but like everything else I've learned about the terraces this episode, even that is a piece of information that's misconstrued and uncorrected. The Ifugao terraces and others like it in the Cordillera region are built up, not dug into the slopes from the top down. Of course it makes sense to build from the ground up, because people who lived in the highlands, they certainly knew that, and at this point, I feel it's kind of pointless to even wonder how we, everybody else who was not from the Cordillera region, how we even got to this stage of thinking that they've been dug into the mountains. Between every piece of marketing material, every tourism brochure, everywhere on the internet. I promise you're going to read about the terraces that are carved into the mountains and about the hardworking ancestors of today's indigenous highland groups who dug tirelessly into the mountains. Of course they worked hard. They were just a lot smarter about the way they worked than any of the foreigners assumed. Because no one asked them. And like the 2,000-year theory, I don't see the idea of these carved terraces changing until the people who write about it actually write about it differently. Because I believe that words matter, and our voice matters, and the way that we perceive these things matter. Anyway, if you do have the book, head to page 34, figure 8. It's a cross-section of an Ifugao pond field in a concave slope valley. Sounds technical, but basically it's a cross-section of a rice terrace, and it's beautiful. There are 16 individual parts that make up most of the terraces. 16. And I know I'm going to mispronounce some of these names, but I want to share what's listed in the book because this is information that we actually have. Honestly, this whole process is super interesting. From the bottom going up, there's this first layer, it's called Gopnad. It's the terrace wall foundation. Then Aldo, a second wall of stones. And Kangal, a layer of small core stones. Basically, they build these first three layers of infill along the slope of the mountain. 
so that it eventually reaches the fourth layer, which is called the dopna, and that kind of equates to the, the bedrock or the original earth floor. So this is the part that they use to kind of flatten out the surface. From here on up, the builders are basically working on that flat area. So after that, there is the abubul, which is a submerged water source, the adog, or the rough gravel fill, topeng, which is another stone wall, haguntal, a hard earth fill, and then now we finally get to the surface level with luyo, or the worked pond soil, and then lubong, which is the water on top. There's a spillway called guheng that kind of cuts like a drainage pipe um, through the banong, which is the dike that's around the pond. And then there are also inaldo, or mounds of vegetable mulch around the edges of the pond, and some tau, or fish sump in the pond. And then finally, bawang, which refers to the enclosed pond surface. Amazing. Last year, we had a publication on this that looked at the energetics, um, the amount of energy needed to construct the terraces. So we used that as a basis to argue that the Batad Rice terraces could have been constructed within 90 years by four and a half workers working six days a week, like seven hours a day. So anyway. That's incredible. To prove that it's possible for five people to complete extensive pond field terraces like these ones in Batad in under 100 years, thanks to the study of energetics. So it's built up. They would have to start from the bottom. It's guided by the agricultural cycle. So people ask me, why would they start from the bottom, not from the top, when the physics of it requires that you have to start, start from the top because you'll be getting rid of the soil that's been taken out. But people forget that the first step is to construct uh, the irrigation channels. So anything that they took out from those terraces, they dumped it on the the irrigation channel and the soil just flows down to the river. So what that means essentially is that the downward flow of water carried the debris that they created in the process of constructing the pond terrace. They would also work during the fallow period so that they don't contaminate the rice fields below. And that's to avoid conflict. And so there is a, like a, unwritten rule on when you are allowed to construct rice terraces. And that's also because you need the labor, the human power to, to construct the terraces. Otherwise, those builders would be in their own fields, tending their fields. Uh, and so you start from the bottom and you move your way up, typically. And that's at least all of my collaborators and informants would tell me about rice terracing. So I've been pretty fascinated by these irrigation systems that people collectively cared for. Just, you know, this whole life-giving water idea as it flows down the mountains. Because without water, rice doesn't grow in the high altitudes. The decision 
to construct a rice terrace system will be based on a, a stable source of water. Too much water pressure will destroy your terraces. Not enough water pressure will not feed your terraces with water. And so um, I think that there is an engineering aspect. Of course, it, it's an engineering feat. You have three types of terraces. You have spring-fed, rain-fed, and irrigation-fed. The most desirable one would be the spring-fed because you don't have to spend a lot of time and energy to construct kilometers long um, irrigation channel. And so when you're constructing the terraces, the first, um, the, your primary concern is the source of water. There are terraces that are dependent on rain and that's the least desirable system. So next I wanted to know what did a typical day of excavations look like? I mean, I probably get way more excited about this than most people, but <laughs> given everything we know so far, what's been found and what is there to find? So our, our typical day starts at around 6 a.m. Everyone should be up by 6 a.m. for breakfast. Um, and after breakfast, uh, we talk about our plans for the day. Um, by 7, we're on the Jeep uh, for a 15-minute ride to um, our jump-off point. So we, we have to walk for about a kilometer to the site. We're in the site by about uh, 7.30 or, or 8. And then we start working from like 8 till lunchtime. We ha don't have a regular lunchtime because lunch is, is uh, delivered, is brought in. And those lunches, being up in the mountains, were typically pork and meat heavy. So when fresh vegetables and fish were available and prepared for them, Dr. Akabata said, people got pretty excited. And then in the afternoon, we work again, typically until four. Um, but because uh, we would see the rain clouds coming in, and sometimes we would end earlier, 2 p.m., 3 p.m., um, of course, the locals uh, know uh, that, that rains are coming because we would see it. <laughs> uh, and because, well, the work's outdoors, weather plays an incredibly important role in archaeology. In our last year in 2016, um, I think that's when we started to see the uh, climate change uh, happening. That we, we won't see rain the whole time that we were there in 2016, I think we only had three days with, with rains. The rest was really dry. They found thousands of pottery shards, glass and stone beads imported into the highlands, locally produced shell beads, things like lots of animal bones, botanical remains, human remains too. All of these tell us so much about the history and continuing traditions of the Ifugao people. Good for archaeology, but let's zoom back out and think of a bigger question. How long is it going to take for those beautifully lush green terraces to more often lie fallow and dry? 
back to the excavations. We work, and then we once we're back at the headquarters, everyone has a 30-minute break, and then we do rounds. That's when we, we talk about what happened during the day, what we found, interpret basic and preliminary interpretation of what we found in the, during the day's excavation, and then what are the plans for the next day. So we do that for maybe 30 minutes, uh, very short, just to update everyone because in archaeology, we, we work in, in groups, in crews. Uh, we call it a crew. Um, and then so we, we update everyone of, of what happened. After that, we process the artifacts. Uh, we clean the artifacts. We accession, we record um, what's been found. And then we have dinner and then back to artifact processing again. That's until 11 p.m. So we, we stop at 11. So usually it, it's a really long day of work uh, like from 6 to 11. Um, and, and students like it. So archaeology is not for everyone. Excavation itself is tedious. If you're out in the sun, like, is there kind of like... In, in the elevations that you're working at up there, does it really get really hot when it's like peak of summer? Yes, um, the, the hot sun. So part of my work, my job as the field director and, and the, the, the field supervisor who assists me is to remind everyone of water break. Um, it's too hot, you know, uh, look for a shade. So we have to remind everyone. Otherwise, heat stroke is real. <laughs> I want to go back quickly to um, you're doing these accessions and, and documenting the work. Can you give us an example of like what some of the, the things that, like what some of the items are that you had excavated and were recording? Like in terms of being able to date something, how are you able to really specify that you found these tarot remnants, <laughs> for, for lack of a better word right now, um, in that site. I guess I'm kind of just like curious, what would remain of root crops after all of this time that would be able to tell you um, and your team that, you know, this is really what they were, were eating and growing here at the time? Yeah, thanks for that question. I almost forgot the data <laughs> behind that. Um, so for... So the old Gan village is, it's a village, it's a settlement. So it's not a rice field, but that's actually the best area to find evidence of processing of, of food, food materials. And so in terms of taro, we looked at the charred residue of pots. So when you cook something in a pot, and it all pots, then you get this charred materials on, on the inside of the pot. So we scrape that and then we send that off to, for analysis. Taro and rice would have specific starch signatures. So when you look at the starch signatures, you would know whether you have rice or taro. And, and we, so far, we haven't found any evidence of rice um, on those charred pots. We also look for, in terms of 
consumption for human remains, so isotopes. Um, I think you've, you've interviewed Ame Garong about isotopic signatures. And although rice and taro have the same isotopic signature, you can also look at the fauna, the animals that graze, that eat plant materials. So what we found in Ifugao, and this is not published yet, um, is that most of the fauna, deer, uh, Philippine deer, was grazing or eating C4-based plants. We don't know what they are. But once we see the, at around 1600s, then that shifted to C3-based plants. So either they're eating taro or rice, uh, rice stock. So there, there are signatures that we can look at. Also with rice, so when you start cultivating rice, you also bring in grasses, weeds that live in the same environment as rice, paddy fun fields. Um, and so we look for those proxy indicators. And so far, we haven't seen any evidence of, of those weeds that are associated with rice. So it's an indication that there is no um, pond fields in that area. That's the wet rice cultivation, basically. Yeah, wet rice, yes. Because you have dry rice, which is very different from, from wet rice. We know that there is dry rice in, in the Philippines for a long time, at least 3,000 years ago. But wet rice is different. I just, I'm fascinated by all the, you're almost kind of like piecing together really parts of a puzzle from so long ago <laughs> and being able to just really keep, keep at it almost to keep looking for ways that you can test your hypothesis. I imagine exciting, but also tiring maybe after <laughs> some time. As I mentioned, yeah, we're scientists, and and I think, at least for me, I, you know, I'll be happy if I found something much older. That means that, you know, my hypothesis was wrong. And the debates that surround the dating of the terraces and the search for, for national identity, um, we really don't have to go back in pre-Hispanic times to to define what is Filipino. Uh, identity is now. It's how we we understand ourselves, but we also have to think about the basis of that identity. And if the basis of, of that identity is the flawed premises that's been fed to us for uh, 300 years, then we need to think about changing the narrative. I wrote an article for a rappler on the Baha'i Kubo, where Almost all of us uh, know how to sing it, <laughs> um, but not all of us know that um, most of those plants are imported. Now you have sinkamas from Mesoamerica, uh, talong from India or eggplant, uh, wing bean cigarillas from Africa or New Guinea, peanuts many from South America, sitao, batao, the only uh, potentially endemic species would be upo, waxgourd, maybe radish, labanos, onion, cebuyas, and ginger, uh, luya. 
we have a picture book coming out um, uh, next month. Uh, so when I published this article on Rappler, a friend of mine who owns a, a bookshop in, in Naga and also uh, he publishes local uh, materials, asked me if we can do this project and said, let's do it. And, and we wanted to show how the idea of being Filipino is more recent. And we know in, in Philippine history that the term Filipino is used to refer to Spanish born in the Philippines. It wasn't until I think in the 1860s that the Filipinos co-opted the term and used that to refer to themselves. And, and then you have this song that shows that you know, Filipino is really uh, later, uh, uh, it's a product of international um, connections, global connections. From the time that you've spent in the region and working with locals, especially after um, Ifago archaeological projects started, what's the overall reaction that the communities have with all this interest now that people have for the terraces? With, with the people that I work with directly um, in Kangan, um, it took about three years for them to, as I said, uh, think about the implications of the dating of the rice terraces. And I keep on reminding them that's, that the dating is actually not my, the main goal of my work. But the main goal of my work is to look at the relationship between Defugao and their landscape and how, in, in terms of, of the theoretical direction of my work, um, how does human decision-making shape the environment, basically, not the other way around, not the environment shaping people's decision-making. Because in the end, we are thinking animals and we, we actually do. Of course, the environment has a lot of influence in, our, in what we do, but in the end, it's, it's our decisions that, that, that matter. But with the dominance of the 2,000-year-old model, we started to think about how do we empower the Fugaus, especially when our history textbook tell about the success of the Highlanders, of the Cordillerans in, in repelling, um, in resisting colonialism. Um, but on the other hand, that narrative is degrading because they said, oh, they were able to do it because of their environment. They were isolated. It's hard to live there and so on. Um, and so when I was discussing this with Marlon Martin and looking at the historical descriptions, especially by Felix Kissing and William Henry Scott, both of them argued too that the terraces were much younger than previously thought. So I'm not the first one who said that the terraces are only 300, 400 years old. And among the Ifugao, whose lineage descended from roughly the Kiangan area, they're called Ikiangan, with the prefix denoting someone who's from Kiangan, just like Ifugao comes from Ipugao, with Pugao denoting the earth world that the humans live in. Among the Ikiangan, um, a lot of them have now taken this stand that you know, the rice terraces became the hook that, that allowed them to resist um, Spanish conquest. Um, because if you look at how rice cultivation, I mentioned this a while ago, that you need a specific 
form of social organization to cultivate wet rice because you need someone to manage everything from land access to water flow to the distribution of the products. So if you have that sort of complex sociopolitical organization, then you would have the necessary organizational requirement to fight off a more powerful army. And so that's, that was the model, and they, they took that. It's not because of the landscape. It's not because of, of relative isolation that we were able to fight off um, colonialism. It was our active decision to shift to wet rice cultivation. I just want to take a minute to break that down. What Dr. Akabado is saying, in essence, is that we have to let go of this idea that highland communities like the Ifugao managed to fight off Spanish colonialism simply because they were up in the mountains and hard to get to, hard to conquer. Most people believe, again, because of what textbook history has taught them, that the rich culture of the Ifugao peoples were successfully preserved for over 2,000 years, basically because they were cut off from the lowlands. By the time the Spanish arrived in the 1500s, highland peoples like the Ifugao had already mastered cultivating rice in the terraces, along with the complex irrigation systems that made it all possible. Because of the level of organization that any community needs to have in order to make wet rice agriculture work, for example, it makes total sense to realize that they very likely had an army of warriors, or some equivalent of that, with an organized plan of defense to resist European invaders. Basically, they weren't just sitting there. In today's terms, they actively resisted occupation successfully because they already knew how to build and maintain the systems that basically supported their, their army, their defense system. No D. <laughs> Jokes aside, I guess like simply believing that Highland cultures were untouched for 2,000 years, in my opinion, basically equates to downplaying what these cultures actually have achieved. Like, for example, the epics and cultivating so many varieties of upland rice that today are at serious risk of disappearing forever. We have to let go of our indifference to the effects of textbook history and what's actually happening in the actual rice fields. And so that became like the basis of our goal to establish the, the Ifugao Community Heritage Galleries that now serve as the Indigenous Peoples Education Center in, in Kangan um, to change the narrative, to empower the Ifugao, to help younger generations to really think about themselves in terms of their local realities and not as something that's imposed by the outside from the Philippine educational system. All of us learn about the Rizals, the Bonifacios, but we talk about the Ifugao as they were active in resisting the Spanish, but there's no name. 
uh, there's no a specific individual. It's, it's as if their resistance to, to Spanish colonialism was just an afterthought. There's a lot to think about from this interview, but I wanted to ask Dr. Acabado as well. What does he hope we take away from learning about his work? For specifically my work, my advocacy is to, for us to appreciate our diversity, um, that Filipino or, or concept of Filipino is, is much more complex than what we learn in school. Of course, there's the need to define what Filipino, Filipino-ness is in terms of our, of our nationalistic um, aim to define who we are. But there are how many, more than 180 ethno-linguistic groups in the Philippines, and, and we need to highlight that diversity when we talk about our history. Our history, at least our textbooks, talk about um, lowland history. We need to open up, we need to have a space for everyone, especially for our marginalized um, indigenous groups, and, and they need to learn their history as well. Of course, indigenous history and indigenous knowledge systems, these are dynamic systems. Uh, and when you put them into writing, they become static. Uh, and so we also have to be able to anticipate that, that what we write in terms of our, of our indigenous history is something that happened at this point in time. And it's not a reflection of what they will become in the future. Because again, history and culture, they're dynamic. Are there any future projects you could share with us too, I asked? Thank you for asking. Uh, so the book uh, is tentatively titled Co-opting Colonialism, the Archaeology of Indigenous History of the Philippines. Marlon Martin is a co-author. It's, it's a call for looking into indigenous histories of the Philippines, uh, using Lefugao as a case study, highlighting the inadequacies of, again, how we learn our history. And I'm also working now, I've started a project in Bicol, where I came from. We're looking at the responses of the Bicolanos to Spanish colonialism. So you have two different responses to colonialism. On the one hand, you have De Fugao who actively resisted up until the arrival of the Americans in 1898. And you have the Bicolanos who were placed under the Spanish administration within two years of contact. And, and the Spanish actually mentioned and wrote that the Bicolanos were the fiercest warriors that they encountered. But then within two years, they became part of the, the Spanish empire. And, and we, I think, I argue that it's, it's because the Bicolanos saw something for the Spanish um, because the, the polities in Bicol were fragmented and they were fighting against each other. So you have this outsider who promised to help <laughs> defeat each other. So they, they allied themselves with the Spanish. And, and so it, it was also an active decision to be part of the Spanish empire. But if you look at, so we're looking at it in terms of, again, maybe 
I don't call it resistance. I call it more of uh, maybe covert resistance. That they decided to ally with the Spanish, but they actively uh, maintained parts of their culture. So it's a, that's another direction of, of, of our work. right is a difficult job and something that so many people are doing. And I want to end this episode by saying that I respect that a lot. And for those who do fight and advocate for the truth, the most we can do as members of society is to support that. And I hope this interview has encouraged you to keep learning about the things that have to do with the Philippines that interest you specifically, because a privilege we have is the ability to educate ourselves. Just having access to the internet is a huge thing. To broaden our perspectives, because no matter where we live, the truth matters. My warmest thanks to Dr. Stephen Acabado, who graciously spent more than our allotted hour for this interview. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Music for this episode is by David Seste, Eric and McGill, Blue Dot Sessions, and Podington Bear. Visit exploringfilipinokitchens.com for past episodes, and if you follow the show on Facebook or Instagram, it's at Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I've got some updates coming, so do follow and stay tuned. And if you enjoy this episode, I would really, really appreciate if you told someone about it, because while I can't track word-of-mouth referrals, they honestly mean so much more. Maraming, maraming salamat, and until next time, thanks for listening.